Good morning, everyone. My name is Craig, and uh, I've, I've got, got the joy, joy of serving as one of the elders here at Riverside. And it's great to see all of you here uh, in person, and also to those of you who are joining us via live stream. Now, something that you might or might not know about me is I really enjoy sports. I've been involved in it at a number of levels, and I am particularly fond of rugby and have done a bit of coaching and refing. And something about refing that is very interesting, and why I'm telling you is because we're going to experience some of that this morning. There's been some good rugby on the last few weeks, but what happens in a rugby game is the ref will blow his whistle. And at that point, 50% of supporters are angry with the ref. Having ref myself, I blow the whistle, and half the side of the field where the one side's parents are, are cheering, and the other half are saying some very ugly things about me, and every time we blow the whistle, that happens. So today, there are going to be some of you sitting here who are going to be like that. I'm guaranteeing you that by the time this morning is up, almost for the topic that we're going to wade into this morning is 50% of you throughout the message are going to be cheering me while others are saying and thinking some very ugly things about me. And while I go through the points, you're going to be uh, switching whether you're for me or against me like most rest on a Saturday. The rest of you are going to be like my daughter during a sports match. So while I was watching the Springboks versus the All Blacks last weekend, my daughter came in towards the screen and went, Dad, what's the cricket score? Because what I'm about to mention and the question that we're going to wade into, you might have never heard of these topics and you're going to be horribly confused by the time we are done this morning. So I want to give some of that prefacing as we get into our question this morning. I want to do a little bit more prefacing. Uh, before we get into that, is there are some complex things within our faith. There are some things that have not been uh, concluded yet since uh, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And like a tangled wall of wall, we often have to approach it from multiple angles. And I have 35 minutes and about 30 minutes left, and so some things just cannot be adequately done in the time that we have in, on a Sunday morning. And so uh, because of the nature of the topic, um, I've got some friends who will be with me after the service and uh, get some coffee, come take a seat, and if you need to talk through this topic a little bit more, we will be around for as long as what is needed. And so uh, here is the question uh, that you have asked, uh, which I have the joy of tackling, is does God predestine us for salvation or do we have some free will and choice? Now you can understand this debate has been raging, has caused multiple denominations to spring up over the last 600 years. People have been killed for believing differently to some of these things. And so... Please, I love you, so please love me back. <laughs> thank you, thank you. All right, so um, this is a complex issue. It has been around for a very long time, and even after this morning, it is going to be around longer still. 
So a couple of things that I'm not going to do this morning. I am not going to unpack every single passage that is used in these arguments. That will be impossible. That will take hours upon hours upon hours. I have tried to distill this to some key points for us to try and digest, and hopefully the Holy Spirit will help you as I help you to navigate some of these things. My own personal experience with these um, has been that I grew up uh, believing and was told one thing without ever being told that there was another option and another biblical option. And so many of you might have had the same experience, and so this will be new. I also have to guard my own heart because I am opinionated. And so I have some strong opinions myself, and so I have deliberately tried to not impose my opinions on this. If you want to know exactly what I believe, coffee afterwards, you can hear that. I'm not going to use this time to impose one biblical argument over another biblical argument um, because I don't think this debate is actually that healthy. All right, how did we even arrive at this point? Okay, I'm going to give you a very quick run-through of history, right? So Jesus, uh, his disciples, we know this part in our Bibles, and we know that he dies on the cross in our place for our sins. A few days later, rises victoriously, defeating our greatest enemies, sin, shame, and death. About 40 days later, he ascends uh, gloriously to heaven where he says, I'm going to return. And he leaves his disciples to run uh, and carry on all that Jesus started, and he empowers them to do so. Fast forward to Acts chapter 15 in your Bibles. It's the first time uh, the leaders of the, the church, this young church, have together to work through a complex issue. Uh, this first issue was called the Jerusalem Council, and they needed to deal with what to do with those who are not Jewish coming to faith. And so they have to work it out, and uh, the half-brother of Jesus, James, he kind of gives the most wisdom in that meeting, and, and they have a great time afterwards as the gospel spreads. Now, they re repeatedly need to gather to solve some issues. So a little while after that, uh, the early church fathers have to get together because some people are writing uh, things about God and are putting other people's names so like some person was writing and then he would sign it, the Apostle Paul. And they were using uh, the church leaders' names and, and trying to impose things on the local church. So the church fathers had to get together, that's what they were called, and they did this thing called canonizing the Bible. Just something that they did. They decided let's help everyone get together and, and kind of put together what should be in, and there was a very good process, I'm simplifying things uh, for time, a, a very good process where they discerned about what should be classified as the authoritative, life-giving, inspired word of God, what we have as our scriptures, and then what shouldn't be in. And that goes on and on, where we get what's uh, called the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed as uh, leaders needed to get together to help people navigate what should I believe, what shouldn't I believe. That was a very helpful process, which we have benefited from today. 
But there are also problems with that because you can sometimes have diverging views using the same set of scriptures which have caused horrible splits from the very first person called Oregon from Alexander or Alexandria who was the first person to do and put together what is called systematic theology which was trying to take everything we believe and put it into what is summarized as like a self-contained whole. And you've got then, you might have heard of things like Augustine and uh, Martin Luther and people who have led and done incredible things for the church. So enter the players for today's debates. We will have, um, there's one more slide, I'll get back to that. So I'll, but uh, uh, next one, please, Avi. Uh, here's John Calvin, uh, who developed a systematic uh, theology and summarized it to try and help people. And then the other player, his friend, uh, Jacob or, or Jacobus Arminius. All right, these are two people from about 600 years ago who put together some thoughts. They knew each other. They were friends. They actually loved each other. And as a result of what these two guys have put together as what we should maybe believe about the nature of salvation and God and a whole bunch of things have caused people to die. And I want to preface all of this, which is why I've yet to tackle the question. Because even if you side on the John Calvin or Calvinist side of things, or what's known as maybe Reformed theology, you hold to a strong position of election. Uh, another term for the debate is monogism versus synergism. Or if you're on the other side where you lie with the free will, there is a choice. I have some involvement in my salvation. Both positions come from the same set of texts, from the same um, passages in the Bible. But these two guys loved each other. And I have friends who I love dearly, who hold very different points or views in this debate, who I share stages with and do ministry together who I call my brother in Christ, who I pray for and meet up regularly for biblical encouragement and strengthening in ministry. So I want to also say that this debate, this question should never cause you to get angry with another person. Okay? It does. This gets very heated because people are very uh, strongly opinionated by this. But we also need to recognize that these originate from a person. And one person tried to be helpful in helping us um, formulate in a concise whole what is helpful to believe about our faith. And what has happened over the years, this has evolved and evolved and evolved. And so people will then read a systematic book and then go, ah, I like this. I then am reformed. I'm a Calvinist or I'm not. I'm like this and I hold to this. The one point, the slide that we skipped over is a very helpful quote by a pastor in America called Mark Driscoll. And he said this, every generation needs to rediscover theology for themselves. That's not to uh, wipe out and erase all the good work that people have done before us. But the danger is when I just hear somebody talking about something you should believe like this, or this is a truth that you should hold, or this is how you understand it, recognize 
how we arrived at that point. And there are dangers to adopt somebody else's thinking around some biblical passages. So there are some ways to go about it. The one is, as I've mentioned, systematic theology. Um, it's something that I have spent years of my life wrapping my head around, and I'm very grateful for it, but it doesn't always answer every question. And then there is what is called biblical theology, which looks at the same problem or the same issue, but under the banner of God's redemptive history. So the big story starts to finish through the whole of Scripture and how we understand it in, in that whole. And so the same thing is done with things like our views of when Jesus is going to return. Godly loving people have studied the Bible and we have four major views on how Jesus is going to return. People love the Bible, study the Bible, and come up with different views around the gifts of the Holy Spirit and things like that. And so, again, this how are we saved question has been raging for about 600 years. Okay, so enough of the kind of intro and the prefacing. Uh, I'm going to give us three kind of analogies or metaphors to help us with this. Please also recognize that metaphors are only helpful to a point. And so if you pick apart or look at the metaphor too much, you will see holes in that in and of itself. Okay, so the first metaphor that I want to take us through is the rowboat. And this is a little bit helpful when thinking through the debates and how to decide where you're going to be. So in this metaphor, the boat is uh, salvation. This is what the boat will represent. And so... Uh, Romans uh, chapter 10, our first scripture for today, verses 9 and 10. If you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. It's just as though you had never sinned, restored fully back to the Father. And it was with your mouth that you confess your faith and are saved. So one thing that we agree upon is that uh, to be restored to the Father, the language that the Bible uses, this word saved, it's we were not in God's family, we were outside of God, and Jesus needed to do the work that only He could do to bring us back to the Father. That is salvation, the work of Jesus. That's not up for debate. And that is the boat. Now, where the debate comes is, how am I saved? So now I'm in the boat, and God is in the boat, representing I am now made right with the Father. I am saved. I believed Jesus, rose from the dead. I confess with my mouth, He is Lord. I am born again, as the, Bible, the language that the Bible uses. I'm saved. Now, is it all God? Is He the only person rowing the boat? Another word for that would be monogerism, the, the theological term for that. The agency, the work is on God alone. That's maybe the more reformed John Calvin position. And the free will Jacob Arminius position is I have some agency somehow that we are both together. Uh, synergism, the free will, I Somehow I responded to the call when I heard about Christ. Both were agreeing that you're in the boats. 
both agreeing that God's in the boat and salvation is found in Jesus Christ alone. But the free will predestination argument goes, who is doing the work? God alone, or do I somehow have some agency in it? Right, so scriptures that are a big deal in this argument are Romans chapter 3. And um, I have left some stuff out because I'm going to be reading a lot of scripture. So also, please, uh, I can't read everything for us this morning. So we're going to pick up from verse uh, 20 in Romans 3. going to read then verse 27 through to uh, chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. And you can hear some of the language and the complexity around the debate. So verse 20. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. Verse 27, where then is the boasting? Is it excluded because of the law? The law that requires works? No, because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from works of the law. This is standard. We agree upon this completely. This is Paul writing in Romans to the church in Rome, and he is talking about how uh, pre-Christ there was the law, obedience to the law kept people in relationship with God, but you always fell short with that. Enter Jesus Christ, who gives complete salvation, not of any works, but by having faith. And so we are justified, made right with God by faith, apart from works of the law. Now, again, with this debate, the question is, when we're in the boat, a question that you need to ask is, is faith in Jesus a work or is it not a work? Because the argument on the one side is we can do nothing. It is all God. And he gets all the glory because if you work, you can boast that you have done something. And then it takes away from the saving work in Jesus Christ alone. But then verse 4, 1 to 5, uh, carrying on from the same thinking and the line of thought is, what shall we say then about Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? If in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accredited to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, wages are credited as a gift, but uh, accredited as a gift, but uh, are not credited as a gift. Sorry, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is accredited as righteousness. Now, the difficulty in this is you see all the verbs: belief to the one who believes, to the one who trusts. Uh, and in no way does it speak to how that is a work for boasting. And so the complexity around this conversation is both using the same passages and claiming different things. But where we settle on this and where you can, if you uh, don't want to wade into this debate, is that God is the one who gets all the glory. And so if you want to go, man, like, I did not work 
towards my salvation and give God all the glory. Yes, give him all the glory because there was a time in my life where I was dead in my sin and I was cut off from God and I deserved it. Yet in his incredible mercy, Jesus stood in my place on the cross, in my place for my sin, and I find myself somehow in the boat. And so if it was through some agency where I trusted and believed, I'm still giving him all the glory because it was him on the cross where it should have been me dying for my sin. And I didn't die for my sin because what I received was incredible mercy and grace that I did not deserve. And so you want to go really nuanced in the debate? That's okay. You need to figure out if faith is a work or not a work. But what you have to do is give him the glory and acknowledge that I'm in the boat when I did not deserve the boat. And it was because of Jesus alone and his mercy that has saved me. Now, a next analogy and a bit of an image that I'll put up there to help us is what I will term and what some people term the pendulum of election. So a phrase and a word that comes up a lot in Scripture is this word election. That I was elected beforehand to be saved. And uh, this is built largely on the Old Testament and the nation of Israel, where God elected out of all of the nations, one nation to be his people, where he said, I will be your God, you will be my people, I chose you out of the nations, I called you out of the nations to be my own. And this theme uh, seems to continue on into the New Testament and something that we need to deal with in this question and uh, the way you need to wrestle with election is does election equal salvation? And so what happens is in this pendulum with God and Israel is brought out in Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11. Again, I can't go through all of that. Uh, one pastor nearly spent 10 years preaching through those chapters of Scripture. We don't have that kind of time this morning. So this pendulum uh, will, is very helpful for me, so hopefully it will help you. So on my far, far right, God chooses Israel. He calls them out of every other nation. He says, you are my people. I am your God. I am calling you uh, to be a light to the nations. People are going to see you and then worship me, God, the creator of everything. Then it gets to Jesus. And scripture in, in Romans, it tells us how God hardened their hearts. And the Jews, the Israelites, rejected Jesus. And as a result, the gospel goes to all of the nations, fulfilling a prophecy or was spoken to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. So there is the swinging of this pendulum. God chooses Israel. Israel hardens their heart. They reject Jesus. The gospel goes to the nations. But then it seems to be that there's going to be a chance for God's chosen people to have uh, the opportunity to once again respond to um, him. Where the debate rages on is, does election equal salvation? Think about the first people that he chose, the nation of Israel, when they came out of slavery in Egypt into the promised land, an entire nation died outside of the promised land. The same people he called did not enter into his promise. And those same people 
uh, have hardened their hearts and didn't accept Jesus. So again, part of the debate. But let's read through uh, Romans chapter 11. This is a long, complicated passage. I'm going to do my best to very quickly deal with it. This is now just, again, the context of this is Paul is writing to the church in Rome who had some very significant issues between uh, Jewish Christians and then Gentile Christians. The church was largely made up of Jewish Christians only. There were some issues in Rome. All of the Jews had to leave, and so the church became exclusively Gentile. The Jewish Christians then came back in and wanted to assume leadership. And so when Paul is writing, he's dealing with a lot of tension between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, and specifically in this passage, he is addressing the Gentile Christians about how they have badly treated the Jewish Christians and how they, the Gentiles, have benefited from all of God's salvation history with his chosen people. So from verse 1, again I ask, did they stumble, and they being uh, Israel, physical Israel, to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgressions, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgressions mean riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? I am making you Gentiles in as much as I am the apostle, uh, I'm talking to you Gentiles, in as much as I am the apostle to the Gentiles. I take pride in my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. For if their rejection brought reconciliation to the world, that's that pendulum, what will their acceptance be but life from dead? If the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. If some of the branches have been broken off, and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others, now share in the nourishing sap from the olive roots, do not consider yourself to be superior to those other branches. If you do, Consider this, you do not support the roots, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief, and you stand by faith. These are very important words here. Do not be arrogant, but tremble. For if God did not spare the natural branches he will not spare you either. So Paul is drawing on the metaphor of an olive branch. And one of the best ways to farm olives is if you've got an established tree, you take a young sapling and you cut in and you ingraft it. And it's the best way to grow and produce fruits. And he is talking about and showing this image of the Gentiles, the rest of the world coming to faith out of what God had done with his natural, his called people, the Israelites. So there's this tree, their hearts are hardened, they didn't believe, the branches were broken off. The Gentiles come to faith, they are grafted in. And so here he's saying, do not be arrogant, but tremble. 
For if God did not spare the natural branches because of their unbelief, how much more will he not spare you either? Verse 22, consider therefore the kindness and sternness of God, sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you. If you continue in his kindness, otherwise you will also be cut off. And if you do not, and if they, again, speaking about uh, Israel, if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. After all, if you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature, and contrary to nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? Now, this is really important because, again, this debate rages about election and, again, free will. But even in this debate, the language is not election, it's belief and unbelief. And so even though God says, I hardened their hearts, the onus gets put on, on them that they were cut off because of their unbelief. And then he speaks to them, you were grafted in because you stand by faith. And so because of your belief, you are granted in. One of the very first verses that we read in this passage was, did they fall beyond the point of recovery? And he says, no, because if they then go back to believing, how much more readily is God able to bring them back in the natural branches from the olive tree? And you be very afraid that if you do not continue in your belief, you can also be cut off. And so again, if you want to figure out election, you need to try and wrestle with the fact that does election mean salvation, dealing with all of biblical history and God's people and what happened to the physical Israel who God had chosen, to those who are Israel by faith and believing uh, God. But when I look at all of that, I go, I'm not so sure that's so much the point, but with the language of I am going to continue believing. If you want to say God has elected me before I was born for salvation, that's okay. But if you rest there alone, take the words from Paul, tremble and be very afraid. Because the language is continue in your belief, otherwise you too may be cut off. Don't want to wade into can you lose your salvation? Uh, that's another question for another day, but just take heart of, did they fall beyond recovery? And the answer was no. He is ready to graft them back in. But the language is continue in your belief. Let's go to that very time in Israel's history, Deuteronomy chapter 30, as our last passage for this morning. One entire generation did not enter into God's promise. The land set aside for them, their inheritance, the promised land, they died in the desert because they chose not to believe. And the law is read again to God's people. That is what the book of Deuteronomy is about. A whole generation has now ready to once again step into God's promise, their inheritance, and the law is read to them. And as they're about to enter this is what was said to them from verse 11 in Deuteronomy chapter 30. Now, what I am commanding you today is not too difficult for you or beyond your reach. 
It is not up in heaven so that you have to ask. Who will ascend into heaven to get it and proclaim it to us so we may obey it? Nor is it beyond the sea so that you have to ask. Who will cross the sea to get it and proclaim it to us so that we may obey it? No, the word is very near to you. It is in your mouth and it is in your heart so that you may obey it. See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, and to keep his commands, decrees, and laws. Then you will live and increase, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to possess. But if your heart turns away and you are not obedient, and if you are drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship them, I decree to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. This day I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you, and I've set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live, and that you may love the Lord your God, listen to his voice, hold fast to him, for the Lord is your life, and he will give you many years in the land he swore to give your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Again, these are God's people whom he chose out of all the other nations. And the one generation has already suffered because their hearts were hardened and they didn't believe. And the call to them again was, before you is this choice. And I implore you to choose life and to love the Lord your God and to obey all of his commands. And I want to encourage us all this morning with this. Again, we're talking about a nuanced thing within theology that people have tried to develop to be helpful for us. But I want to encourage us, as we think about all of this, it's dealing with the nature of salvation, faith in Jesus, belief in him. But the call is always about Jesus and Jesus alone and what he has done. And the call is for us to believe in him ongoing. That today I have the responsibility when I get out of my bed to choose to obey all that he has commanded. That when I get out of bed tomorrow morning, the responsibility I have is to love God with all my heart. To respond to the incredible salvation that I have that is found in Jesus alone. When I get out of bed, his mercy for me is new. It's going to be new for me on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday again. But when I get out of bed, I have a responsibility to respond to that. I don't get to sit back and go, I can do nothing. I'm saved. I'm happy. I'm going to heaven. My ticket is booked before the foundation of the world. No. Again, Scripture tells us that faith comes by hearing, and so we've got a responsibility to go out and proclaim the good news about Jesus Christ. Whether people are chosen for salvation or not, the responsibility on us is to believe. The responsibility on us is to keep believing and obeying all that he has commanded. The responsibility is on me to keep loving him every single day and choosing to obey and to go out and proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to everyone I come into, because the only hope for anybody in this life is Jesus. And so, yes, it's good to know how we are saved. It's good to try and figure out, 
if grace is uh, irresistible or if there is some measure of it that I then get to respond to in free will, if you want to figure that all out, go for it. It doesn't impact on salvation. It's an open-handed issue. But what, what is not is how I choose to respond every single day to keep on loving my Jesus who saved me when I don't, did not deserve it. And if you are going to wade into the bait, you do it with love. And if you come across someone who doesn't believe the same as you and they're aggressive, you be gentle and you be kind and you love and you serve and you still do ministry with people because Jesus is so much greater than differing beliefs in salvation. And differing beliefs rather in theology. Salvation is not up for debate. So church, choose today life. Walk out of here with the resolution that I'm going to make the decision to love Jesus more. And I'm going to walk in holiness more than I ever have before. I'm going to work with the Holy Spirit to be transformed more into his likeness. And I'm going to tell people about my Savior Jesus who died on the cross in my place for my sin and that the only hope that anyone has in this life is the hope that we have in Jesus. I'm going to pray and then um, I'm going to be here at the front. And uh, again, I've invited some people who um, are on different sides of the camp to maybe just be present if you want to just chat. And so that again, I'm, I'm not going to be biased in any way. Um, and to have some conversation, if you want anything clarified, come and get clarity. I also want to put this to you. Maybe today you have never made the decision to follow Jesus Christ. You've never heard about what he has done. Uh, that invitation is for you uh, today, and you can come uh, and take a seat here at the front as well. Maybe let's do this. If you would like prayer for anything, because we've got people who love just to pray with you and, and love you, and if there's anything you would like prayer for, come and take a seat on this side. And someone from the prayer team will come and love you and appropriately pray with you. And also, if you want to actually enter into the boat and just be, take part in what God's incredible salvation, you come take a seat there. Someone will engage with you on that. But if you want to talk and gain clarity around anything in the sermon, come and sit to the side. And so that's how we know um, how to connect with you guys. Otherwise, have an incredible week. Love God this week more than you ever have. And love people more than you ever have. And try and tell someone about what you have received in Jesus. God, thank you so much that we get to talk about these things. Thank you for the great uh, men and women of faith who've gone before us, who have encouraged us, who have done the hard work of figuring out some of the complex things of our faith. But more than that, we want to thank you, Jesus, for what you did in our place. Jesus, we thank you for your mercy because none of us could save ourselves None of us could work to repair uh, the damage done by sin, how we were cut off and dead in our sin. But because of your great mercy, Jesus, you went to the cross for our sin, and we acknowledge you, our gracious, glorious Savior. God, thank you that you love us. Thank you for your grace that saved us. God, thank you for the responsibility that we have to love each other, God, that we get to love you because you first loved us and that there is a world who is in desperate need of you. And so God, help us to grow in our love and our affection for you and for people and for those who have never heard about you, Jesus. 
We thank you that we get to be gathered as your church this morning. In your holy name, amen.